Lord Jesus, what an incredibly liberating and freeing thing it is uh, to think that in life we are not any longer plagued by guilt nor afraid at the prospect of death because we are secure in your embrace. Uh, We thank you for this and pray that both by our giving, the giving of these gifts, and by the living of our lives, the realities of this gospel might be heard and seen here in this church and through this church, out into the wider world, to the praise of your glorious name. Receive these gifts to that end. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We are uh, making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we come to chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, and I'll invite you to turn there as you're turning there. I'll just remind you uh, of something that Charles Spurgeon said about the gospel. Uh, Spurgeon said the gospel is shallow enough for an infant safely safely to sit, and it is deep enough to swallow an elephant. We're in the deep part of the pool, but we are still dealing with the gospel. This is not a sidebar. This is not an optional thing for us to contemplate. This is not something too difficult for us in the sense that our minds can't understand the reasoning and the logic and the thinking of the Apostle Paul. Our hearts may resist it. We may have questions about it. But let me remind you that this letter to the Romans was not written for academics. It wasn't written for theology professors. It was written for dock workers and slaves and school teachers. It was written for us. So when we come to a passage like this, we remember yet again that while we're in the deep end of the pool, we're in that end of the pool where the, where the elephant disappears from view. We're dealing with God's word given to his precious and beloved people for their good and for their encouragement. So read with me, beginning at verse 6 and then reading through verse 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, She was told, the older will serve the younger, 
As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, these are uh, great, great truths, deeply, deeply reassuring and comforting for your people. And yet we confess hard to grasp and appropriate. And so we again pray for your spirit. We ask that your spirit would come to assist us to open our minds and, and soften our hearts that we might receive these things so that your word might do in our lives what we have confessed already that your word does do. It convicts us. It changes us. It brings us into conformity with the image of your Son. Lord Jesus, walk among us and take this your word and do these things in the lives of your people for the praise of your great and glorious name. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want to tell you a little story about my bride, Barb. I asked permission. Well, I, I don't know if I, did I ask permission or did I just say I was going to do this? I, I told her what I was going to do and she didn't object, so I guess I have permission. Um, and it's really, not, it's really not telling a story on her so much as it is illustrating a story or a kind of a truth about us. Because I suspect that what Barb thought and sort of expressed is something that, that you and I have thought or expressed as we've reflected on a passage like this. And, and here's the story. Barb was a young Christian. She was working at a summer camp, uh, and she was in a conversation with a friend. Um, and this friend, who had been a Christian a bit longer, I think, uh, was, uh, was talking with her about the assurance of our salvation. That's kind of, I think, what they were talking about. I may have some of the details wrong. I'll be corrected after the service, you can be sure. Um, and... And, but what they were talking about, I think, was this matter of the assurance of salvation, eternal security, and, and the fact that, that our security is grounded not, not in who we are and what we do, but grounded in God and who he is and what he does. And, and at some point in the conversation, Barb said something like this to her friend. She said something like, like you know, I chose to follow Christ, and if I want to choose not to follow Christ, I can do that. I walked into this thing, and I can walk out of this thing. Now, again, I suspect, I suspect that you, at some point, maybe early in your Christian life, or or maybe even yet today, uh, may harbor a notion like that, may think a thought like that, may wrestle with something like that. Barb, in talking with her friend, didn't quite say this. In fact, her attitude wouldn't have been this, I don't think. I didn't know her at the time. But, but, but some of us sort of have this idea that you can sort of stick that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, it was my choice to get in, and if I want to get out, I'll get out. Now, there is no question that people choose to accept Christ. There is no question that people acknowledge their sin and repent of their sin and turn from their sin 
to accept Christ as their only hope in life and in death, their only Savior, the only one appointed by God by which a human being, a person who is apart from God, may be restored to fellowship with God. There is no disputing that people accept Christ, choose to follow Christ. And there is no disputing that other people choose not to follow Christ. The question is, why do some people choose to follow Christ and some choose to reject Christ? And in Paul's case, in the case of the apostle writing this letter, who went from synagogue to synagogue and preached Christ, preached that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises, the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple, the kingship, the prophetic office. He preached Jesus as the fulfillment of all of it, all of which is contained in the oracles of God, all of which had been entrusted, as we saw last week, to the Jewish nation, Why is it, this is the thing Paul is wrestling with, why is it that the vast majority of Jews are rejecting the promised one? That's to put the question negatively, to be sure, but it's the same question. Why do some accept? Why do others reject? There were Jews who did accept Christ. 3,000 of them on the day of Pentecost. If you read a little bit more deeply into Acts, you get to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, where Luke writes, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's very clear that the first believers were Jews, ethnic Jews, those who were descended from Abraham, his sons and daughters according to the flesh. But as we'll see, they became his true sons and daughters, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit and by the work and agency of the Spirit. People became obedient to the faith. Priests became obedient to the faith. Paul himself, as he writes this letter to the Romans, uses himself as a chief example of the fact that a Jew A Jewish person does, in fact, believe in Christ. It says that in chapter 11 and verse 1. Has the purpose of God failed? No, it hasn't failed. I'm an Israelite. I believed. The question is, what accounts for this? What ultimately accounts for the fact that anyone, Jew first and then the Gentile, What is it that accounts for the fact that anyone is a Christian at all? And the answer that Paul is going to give us in these verses is God. Ultimately, finally, not me, but God. The fact that I am a Christian today, and I mean that personally, 
the fact that I am a Christian today, that anybody is a Christian at all, can be accounted for because God acts in grace to choose, to call, and to redeem lost sinners. That's the answer that Paul is going to give. That is how Paul accounts for the fact that some believe and others do not. And here we stand, here we stand in the presence of the stunning, remarkable, overwhelming, and mysterious grace of God, rooted in God and manifest as God does this wonderful and yet admittedly mysterious thing of choosing and then calling. The doctrine of election and its partner, the doctrine of calling, these are words found in the text, verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not according to works, but because of him who calls. Election means simply, you can check, you can check the lexicons yourself. You can, you can check the dictionaries yourself. Election means simply to pick out, to select, to choose. And call means simply to summon, to call, to summon. God calls those whom he has chosen and those whom he has chosen, he calls. Let me say it again. God calls those whom he has chosen and those whom he has chosen, he calls. Now, this week and next, I want to look at this passage and then moving on into verses 14 and following, look at the first objection that is raised to what it is that Paul says in verses 6 through 13. But I really feel like it's important that we make some general observations about this before we dive into the details. I always feel like it's a good idea, and I've learned this from some of my teachers. It's always a good idea to kind of get the 30,000-foot view of things before you dive down into the weeds, and that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to make some general observations about this and then look at the details next week. And so here is observation number one, and I've already alluded to it by referencing you to verse 11. Observation number one is this. This term, election, and its partner term, calling, and its related term, which appears in chapter 8 of Romans, its related term, predestination, these are biblical terms. They are Bible terms. They are Bible concepts. Again, the terms mean to elect is to pick out, to select, to choose. That is election. And calling means to summon, to summon. Now, remember what we talked about when we looked at this term in chapter 8, verses 28 and 30. Those who are called according to his purpose those whom he predestined, he also called. Remember that this term call is a strong, strong term. 
I think the illustration that I used when we were looking at it then, when we were looking at chapter 8, verses 28 and 30, uh, is the idea of a phone call. You know, we live in this wonderful technological society where when the phone rings, I can pick up my phone, I can look at my phone, and I'll probably get a readout telling me who it is who is calling me. And I can choose not to answer the call. If the number begins with 888, it's a solicitation. I just hang it up. I'm done with solicitations. If it's another area code, I'll bet you 10 to 1 that it's a political call. It's somebody calling me to try to get my vote or ask me questions about who I'm going to vote for. So I don't answer those calls either. That's not the force of this term, as you find it in chapter 8 and chapter 9. This call is the call of God. And when God calls, things happen. When God speaks, things change. This is the word that Paul uses in chapter 3, verse 17, to describe God who, quote, gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. See, when God calls, he calls something that didn't exist into existence. His call explains the existence of everything. He called the worlds into existence. His voice His summons, his words explain why the entire universe exists. His call explains why a 90-year-old woman who is way, way, way past childbearing years, way, way, way past the time when a woman can conceive, it is his word that explains why that woman can conceive a child in her womb. You can explain it in terms of Abraham, even though he's a hundred. Guys are just relentless. But you can't explain it in terms of a 90-year-old woman. The only way to account for the existence of that child in the womb of that woman is that when God calls, things change. It is the call of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, that accounts for Lazarus coming out of the grave four days after his death when he was certifiably dead. The call of God is an irresistible, imperious, and effectual call. That's why you have a passage like Isaiah 55, verse 11, where God says to Isaiah and to the whole nation, my word will accomplish what I've sent it to accomplish. It will not return to me void. It will do what I've sent it out to do. In the case of Isaiah and his ministry, as you read Isaiah and you go back to his call in Isaiah chapter 6, it's very clear that the word of God will have two effects in Israel. It will serve to harden hearts of the resistant and it will serve to be refreshment to those whose hearts, having been changed by the Spirit, are readied 
to hear it. But it will always accomplish its purpose. It cannot be stopped. It is the call of God, the voice of God, that accounts for what is and which would otherwise not be. And those who are called are those who first were chosen, picked out, selected. And my point here is simply, these are Bible terms. They're not Presbyterian terms. They're not Reformed terms. They're not Calvinistic terms. They're not Augustinian terms. In a very real sense, they're not even Pauline terms. They are biblical terms. At this point, I should probably say something for those of you who are newer to Christ the King about how it is that we come to these scriptures. We believe these scriptures to be the inspired word of God originating with him. Words which God has given to his people because he loves his people deeply. And he does not want his people wandering around in darkness, wondering what he is like, wondering what's wrong with them. He wants them, and and clearly we know something is wrong, don't we? God wants us to know the truth about him. He wants us to know the truth about ourselves. He wants us to know the truth about the solution which he has provided for what is wrong, not only with me, but with the whole of the creation, the whole of human history. He wants me to know that he is Lord and King over everything, and he is moving everything in the direction of a glorious consummation when he will be the rightful king, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that his son Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of glory. He wants me to know these things. He doesn't want me to be uncertain about them. And so he has given this word. He has inspired this word. He has breathed it out. It's been received by human authors. It's been passed through their very real personalities in their very real historical settings. This letter is Paul's letter, but there is another author behind it, and that author is God himself who has breathed it out. And when his word is spoken, when it is breathed out, it commands It commands our regard and our submission. It has authority for us. And God in his providence, having breathed it out, has also seen to it that it be written and that it be preserved across all of these centuries for the well-being of his people. That's why these words are in the text of Scripture. Paul didn't dream them up. He certainly was conscious of the significance of these words and these ideas as they came to him through the text of the Old Testament scriptures. But ultimately, ultimately, there is another author behind the author, and that author is God. There are lots of voices out there in the world. I mentioned this to the inquirers class. There are lots of voices out there in the world clamoring, screaming for your attention. There is one voice you can trust. And that is the voice of God, as he has made himself known in his word. 
His voice is a true and reliable voice. He never lies. He never errs. He never misleads. And when he speaks, he speaks out of his deep and abiding love for his people. So when we come to his word, we come to his word as those who come before their creator father, as creatures created by him and as children whom he has redeemed to be his own. And I'd have you notice something. Several of the commentators point this out, and it's a point worth making, that even Paul himself, as he writes this letter, has supreme regard himself for the priority and the authority of the Word of God, because everything that he says in chapter 9, he himself grounds in the statements of Scripture. Six times he quotes Genesis. He quotes Malachi. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Hosea throughout this chapter. And so Paul himself is an illustration of the very thing we're trying to say here, that we understand There's one reliable voice to be trusted to which we refer as we wrestle to understand who God is and his ways. And that word is God's word, the word that he has spoken. So that leads to a second thing. The first observation is we are coming to God's word as we come to these things. And here's the second thing. We come humbly. We come humbly. We come not as those who sit in judgment of what, is, what God has said. We come as those seeking as God's children to submit before our wise Father. The doctrine of election is challenging. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I believe the scriptures teach this. But if you think for a minute that I don't struggle with its implications, you don't know me. The implications are daunting, deeply challenging, hard to wrestle with. But I come before this and the whole of God's word, not as one who would presume to stand in judgment of God, but one who seeks by God's grace to come humbly as a creature, child before his creator, father, not giving in to the temptation to say, God can't be this way. God can't do this thing. If I can't understand it, if I don't agree with it, I'm not going to believe it. Or even worse, it's not true. I come as a creature child before my Creator, Father. And I seek by God's grace humbly to submit to the things that He has said in His Word. I mentioned to the class this morning, We don't always see everything with equal clarity in the scriptures, right? 
Every once in a while, something will come into focus. Something will become crystal clear for us. And sometimes when things become crystal clear for us, those things can be incredibly challenging. Like what Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 33, No one of you can be my disciple unless he gives up everything he has. What the heck does he mean by that? And I shared the story of a New Testament professor who in a lecture said, you know, the commentators disagree about what it is Jesus meant when he said in Luke 14, 33, no one of you can be my disciple unless he gives up everything he has. But they are in absolute agreement that Jesus didn't mean exactly what he said in Luke 14, 33. We don't know what he did mean. But we know he cannot possibly have meant that discipleship would mean giving up everything I have. He couldn't mean that. And you read the passage in context and you begin to realize as it comes into focus that Jesus is saying an incredibly challenging thing. See, that's why in that case and any number of other cases, that's why I come before God humbly as the creature child before his creator father, seeking by his grace to submit to everything he says to me. And I do that because I know that he loves me. I know that he cares more about me than I care about myself. And the evidence of that is the cross behind me. So it's challenging, but I come before God humbly. And, and as you've heard me say multiple times in this church, those of you who have been around for a while, when I come before God, I come humbly because I have to acknowledge there are two things at least that are true of me. I am finite and I am flawed. I don't know everything that there is to know. And I have to acknowledge that I've been wrong about things in the past. So for me, as finite and flawed, to presume to be able to tell God to be who he should be or to tell him what he should do becomes the height. Hear me? Not being mean here. It becomes the height of arrogance. God, give me grace. God, give me grace to submit to what you have said as the creature child before his creator father. And here's the third thing I need to remember. I need to remember that whatever is said here is said for pastoral reasons. It's said for pastoral reasons. I've said this before, but let me say it again. Paul is not engaging here in ivory tower theoretical theology. He's not engaged in philosophical speculation. He's a pastor. And he loves people. And if you doubt that he loves people, then you need to go back and read the first five verses of this ninth chapter and see the Apostle Paul so deeply distressed over unbelief in Israel that he would be willing. He knows it's not possible. He knows it's lunacy to think that he could be the substitute dying in order to secure the salvation of his brothers and sisters according to the flesh. He knows that's impossible, but if he could do it, he would. He would. 
He says he knows unceasing anguish and deep sorrow in his soul because of his kinsmen according to the flesh. He says in chapter 10, verse 1, My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they be saved. And so what he writes, he writes as a pastor. Not to engage in speculative theology. But to answer questions. Questions that he's had to wrestle through. Questions that he's heard asked as he's gone from synagogue to synagogue and preached this gospel, and someone believes it, and someone gets Paul off in a corner after the service and says, says, Paul, I get this. I get this. I get that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised one. I get it. But why doesn't my wife, why doesn't my husband... Why doesn't my child, why doesn't my extended family? Let me tell you what Paul would say. The first thing he would say is this. The last chapter has not yet been written. Keep praying, keep speaking, and understand that your words in the hands of Almighty God can be the arrow that pierces the heart of that unbelieving wife, that unbelieving husband, that unbelieving child. Keep praying, Keep speaking because the last chapter has not yet been written. I believe he would say that. That's why he continues to preach. We'll see this in chapter 10. The reason he continues to preach is because he understands that preaching, the communication, the heralding of the glad tidings of the gospel is the means which God has appointed for the salvation of those who most certainly will believe. And you don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. So keep praying and keep preaching and keep speaking. My point here is that Paul has wrestled through all of this. And he writes what he writes as a pastor who cares to help people understand. And as I said last week, he is merely, merely, merely. He is simply modeling his Savior, Jesus, who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, who wept over the city, weeping over the unbelief that he encountered at that grave and that he encountered in that city. Paul's writing these things as a pastor. And then here's a fourth, a fourth and closely related observation. And I guess I've already illustrated it, alluded to it. Election and zeal for the lost, passion for souls, are not incompatible ideas. To believe in election, to believe as I would suggest to you, to believe as the scriptures teach, does not lead to being calloused with respect to the lost. I'll suggest to you that in fact election has an energizing effect. The idea that that God calls has an energizing effect. 
Because what it means is, as I preach and as I teach, God, in the mystery of his sovereign workings, will use this communication to prick hearts, to crush the proud, to raise up the downcast and draw them to himself. Election and zeal for the lost are not incompatible. How do I know that? I look at the example of the Apostle Paul. He believed in these things. He wrote about this thing, these things, and yet his heart breaks for those who are apart from Christ. And again, he is only mimicking, modeling his Savior Jesus and even the Father himself. And I just remind you of Ezekiel 33:11, God saying, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. So the idea of election is not incompatible with passion for the lost, zeal for the lost. It doesn't make us complacent. We do not become Christian fatalists, Christian determinists who simply sing the ditty, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. You see, the ministry of the gospel is being yoked to the risen Christ. And to be yoked to the risen Christ means that we're in the business of heralding the glad tidings of his glorious kingdom and summoning men and women children to leave the poor, pathetic kingdoms of this world and become citizens in a kingdom of eternal glory. And so to believe in these things does not gut us of enthusiasm for the lost, concern for the lost, passion for the lost. It actually energizes us for these things. And then finally, there's this. And this last observation is actually a plea. It is a plea. It is a plea that you would pray. That you would pray for me that you would pray for yourselves. That as we make our way through these chapters, we end up where the Apostle Paul ends up. I hate to belabor the illustration, whether the illustration of ascending Mount Everest or the illustration of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. But the illustrations of climbing Mount Everest or listening to the final movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, those illustrations are used simply to make this point. When you get to the end of chapter 8, you think you're at the summit with this glorious statement that there's nothing in all the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. And yet what I've suggested to you is that when you get to the end of chapter 8, you're simply at the base camp. You've made an ascent, but there you're catching your breath before you make the final ascent to the summit where the true glories, the deepest glories, the deepest wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ are seen. And when you get to that summit, when you get to that summit, and this is a striking thing, look, when you're at base camp, it's all about me. And that's good. It's good that it's about me. 
when you're at base camp, it's, it's about the fact that I'll never be separated. I will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus ever again. But when I get to the summit, it is all about God. When Paul comes to the end of this section, he ends in doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Folks, that's where I want to be when we get to the end of this section. That's where I want us to be. Marveling, amazed, staggered, stunned by the height and length and depth and breadth of the grace of God for me in Jesus Christ. We're going to look next week at Abraham and at Isaac and at Jacob. And this gives you a bit of an overview of what we're going to see next week. Can we really say, are we prepared to say that the answer to the question, why did Abraham leave Mesopotamia to go to Canaan? Does the answer to that question lie in Abraham? Or does it lie in God who called him out of his paganism? Not because he was a good candidate for grace. Read the story of Abram. He got into trouble. He was willing to give his wife to a pagan king to save his own sorry backside. He's a candidate for grace and then he did it again. And his son Isaac replicated what he saw in his father. He's a candidate for grace. Jacob and Esau. Are we really going to suggest that there's something in Jacob that explains why God set his affection on Jacob but passed over Esau? You read the story of Jacob and Esau, I will tell you, Esau comes off both in one sense as an innocent victim and the more righteous of the two. Jacob is the one whose name is scoundrel and usurper. A candidate for grace? And do I really want to suggest, I don't live inside your skin, but my brothers and sisters, I live in my skin. And I won't say this for you, but I will say it for me. Do I really want to suggest that there is something in me that explains, that accounts for why I am a Christian today? If you crawled inside my skin, you would be horrified.
you would be horrified. Now, where we want to be and where by God's grace I hope we will end up more and more and more is humbled in the presence of a loving Father who sets his affection not on candidates for grace, but those who by their heart attitudes and their actions have disqualified themselves from grace so thoroughly that the only repair possible would be an alien repair. A reparation made through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Where I want to be at the end of these three chapters is silenced in utter and complete wonder at his loving grace that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. Help me. You are making a frontal assault on our pride and self-reliance. And I beg you that we would receive that frontal assault gladly so as to bow in your presence lost in wonder love and praise so that turning our eyes upon Jesus the things of this world may grow strangely dim in light of his surpassing glory and grace God get us to that place we ask in Jesus name Amen